and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. Before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you can help us out at the podcast. So first of all, thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. If you've shared some of these conversations on social media, we really appreciate it. Uh, the more you share these conversations, the more it does help us expand our reach. So thanks for continuing to share these conversations. And hopefully you're finding them to be enjoyable, refreshing, with wisdom and knowledge. And there are gems that hopefully you are taking away. I know I am. The second way you can help us is by going over to patreon.com slash intentional performers. And over there, you can subscribe to the show for as little as $2 a month and as much as $10 a month. So thank you all who have supported us up until now. And if you are inspired to do so, please go over to patreon.com slash intentional performers. The last way you can help us is by writing a review on iTunes. So go over to iTunes and look up intentional performers and write us a review. Once again, thanks to everybody who has already done so as well. Now to today's guest. So Matt Hartman is somebody who I got connected to from his brother, Andrew. And I've known Andrew for a while. We went to high school together and really got to know each other in college at Syracuse University. And when I was first firing up this podcast, Andrew, who actually said, Brian, you should do a podcast and you should talk to my brother, Matt. So I talked to Matt and you're going to learn about Matt today, obviously. But uh, as we jump into this conversation, you'll hear us talking about towels. And uh, Matt was somebody who gave me all kinds of advice on equipment and how to go about designing a podcast and where to publish it. And he just was one of the first people I talked to about a podcast. So I owe a lot to Matt. And if you like this podcast, you can thank Matt. If you find this podcast to be annoying, you can blame Matt for getting me started. So I just want to give a shout out to Andrew and also to Matt for getting me started on this journey. And it's been quite a journey up until now as well. And a little bit about Matt. So Matt has a background in, in venture capital. He also has developed technology for companies. So he is a developer, but he also has worked in venture capital and invested in companies. So today he works for a company called Betaworks. And Betaworks is this nice uh, convergence of what Matt is really passionate about, which is developing new products that can make an impact 
And then Betaworks will also invest. So they serve as an incubator, as a place where developers come together uh, and can learn and grow and and cultivate their product or uh, what they're working on. And then Betaworks will actually invest in them as well and be a part of that journey as well. So Matt has a really interesting story that involves music, that involves technology, that involves partnerships, and he's going to get into all of that today. And at his core, Matt really cares about developing products that can make an impact on people. And so that's going to come out in this conversation. And without further ado, I'm so excited to share with you, Matt Hartman. I told Matt as soon as he walked in, I said, do you want me to get you a towel? And his his brother, Andrew, who I've known for a while now and is good friends with my younger brother, we play basketball together. And I know Andrew is a sweater, so he uh, needs towel for needs towels for a different reason. But Matt told me when he first started that he he's a sound guy and he really wanted the sound to be of quality and he'd put a towel over his head to try to get that beautiful crisp sound and so we don't have a towel and we're going to do the best we can but Matt I'm, I'm so excited to have you here and to learn about what you do and your story and your journey and uh, if you have anything else you want to say about podcasting and towels I'm excited to learn about that as well um, but where I'd love to start with you is you grew up right down the street from here we're broadcasting in Bethesda Maryland and you went to the same high school I went to uh, but I'd love to hear a little bit about your story growing up because I know about your brothers, but I know you're a little different than both of your brothers. So I'd love to start there and, and let's just uh, let's just roll. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. Um, it's uh, I'm, I'm excited to be on the podcast that that we had had talked about a while ago now. Um, so, yeah, I grew up around uh, around here. I, you know, you know, my brothers and their their. Uh, they're good athletes. I was sort of an okay athlete. Uh, did, played a lot of music growing up, um, and then and my brothers joke that I was an indoor kid. Maybe I'm an indoor kid because I I play a lot. I played music. I learned how to program pretty young. I think my friends and I were figuring that out. We were about thirteen. Wait, wait, wait. So you're not that much older than me. At thirteen, you were already programming. So, so yeah, there was. Um, this language at the time called QBasic and a bunch of my friends had learned about it and there was no, the, the internet was AOL at the time, right? There wasn't like, we didn't really know how to go to websites in the same way that we do now. Um, but we started just making things in it and trying to learn how to do it and teaching each other how to, how to do it. And by the time I went to high school, I think they had the first computer science class, either maybe my freshman or my sophomore year. And then, and now I think they have, they, they, but they were, we were in the class where they, every year as we got a year older, they would have a new class. So it was, by the end, we, there was AP computer science, but it, there was not that when we were freshmen. There was but, no classes. But, but what drew you to, to that world? Because, oh, maybe, maybe it's indoor versus outdoor type deal, but I, you know, used AOL to do instant messenger and that was sort of the existence for me. Was it your environment? Was it your friends? What do you think drew you to that? I think I remember having this distinct feeling that it was of of sort of excitement that I could change the computer, the the thing that Bill Gates made and shipped. And I like that's how I remember thinking that thought. Like, wow, this isn't a finished product. It's something that you can actually change. And I remember just being, I don't know. I always liked making things. 
And were you a Lego guy? Yeah. You, yeah, you were a Lego guy. I love Legos. So, so you had that mind of creating and wanting to build. Yeah, I think that's. I think that was sort of my core. Like, uh, yes. And your friends were also into that. Yeah. Um, so I had a bunch of friends that were excited about that stuff. Also, pretty good at math, um, which I think was was probably relevant. Although maybe that maybe that's correlation, not causality. But they they were. Um, interested in like ideas and building things and what can you make this thing do? I mean, it was, it was, uh, I just remember thinking it was really cool. You, you could go to a, in the same way that if you, um, I'll give you a weird example. I love ice cream and I, uh, I was curious how you make it, but not necessarily making your home. Like how do you commercially make ice cream? And so I ended up manufacturing, this is much lighter. This is like, you know, a year ago. Um, I ended up manufacturing, like doing a run of small batch ice cream, mostly because I just didn't know how, I wanted to understand how it worked. And I think that the motivation for doing that, which is like, I like this thing and I can buy it, I can buy it, but like, I, I don't really understand anything except for the final product. I want to understand the whole process of how the thing works. And I think it was actually not dissimilar from getting a piece of software, having at the time you'd go to CompUSA, you'd buy a, the CD or the floppy disk, and you'd come back home and you'd put it into the computer and you'd install it and you'd have a game. It's like, how, do you, how, how does that come to be? And I think once, when you get a, like a little bit of a, uh, a peek behind the curtain of how, and then you start to say, oh wait, well you can, I, can, I can do that part, what other parts can I do? And then what would I do if I just had a total blank canvas ultimately? It's really interesting because I find myself to be a very curious person. I, I'm curious about people, but I'm all, I always use this example. When it comes to the fax machine, and this is outdated technology now, I still have zero clue how the data arrives from one place to another. It's like magic. It just kind of goes, I don't know, how does the fax machine work? But you were someone who probably would want to learn, no, I actually want to understand how the fax machine works. Same thing with the internet. Like, I don't know how it works. It just shows up. And for me, my curiosity stops when I don't necessarily have interest in going behind the curtain, but I'm always curious about people. Like, I'm always curious. How do they come to be? Why do they come to be that way? But when it comes to things and how they function, I'm in awe. The fax machine is a great example. I'm still in awe of the fax machine. I still... I'm like, that is crazy. And I don't have a lot of desire to learn about how that came to be. And I think for school, school is, if you're good at learning about how the fax machine works, school will reward you. Um, because I think understanding humans is not as relevant, at least in high school, um, at that stage. I think it really rewards people who are super curious, like math, science, I just, it, 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 I'm like, okay, I got it. I understand the outcome, but the process of, of that didn't really matter to me. That's interesting. No, I, th I think it's totally, I, I relate to the curiosity as the, as the driver. Um, for me, I think it was whatever the thing was that I got a peek at. I mean, you have a couple books on, on, uh, on there. You have like psychology of persuasion, right? And to me, uh, that, that lays out, there's sort of a, a um, lineage of Kahneman and Tversky, and then uh, Robert Cialdini, and then Dan Ariely. 
which are sort of like the actual experiments, the synthesis of the experiments as it applies to people, and then the I, I sometimes think of it as almost like in in predictably irrational Dan Ariely's book, it's almost like the weaponization of some of that in business contexts. And to me, I always I found that equally fascinating, right? And and I haven't spent as probably as much time certainly as you understanding all of the mechanics behind people. But I do think there are similarities. And I think for me, the driver is anytime you get a peek at that, wow, I can understand how that thing works, whether it's a human being and why we care about social proof or whether it's a fax machine, as you said, and, and how that even sends signals over the telephone lines. I'm, I'm sort of equally curious. But it is interesting. And, and you bring up like Daniel Kahneman's work and thinking fast and slow and the big book with all kinds of data in it. Uh, and he won a Nobel Peace Prize for it. Um, but I think a weakness of mine is that I often, let's use neuroscience as an example. Neuroscience is, is really fascinating because it's looking at how the brain works and operates. And um, I was always less interested in the brain and more interested in the mind. And so the distinction there that I would, I would say is like, okay, the, the brain is this thing and we can learn how it works. And I would really be curious about that person's mind and how that person interpreted and saw the world. And I think if you can have both of those, that's a beautiful synthesis because then when working on the mind, you still have the research of the brain to have a framework. So for me, it's hard to get into the neuroscience, but I think it's important. Um, and where I love to live and be is, is with the mind. And it's, it's, I'm always intrigued by people who are able to go into that other space because um, it sometimes can be monotonous. It sometimes can be rich in data. And it takes a lot of work and discipline, I think, to play in that primary space. And so I'm, it's fascinating now that I have two kids, I'm thinking about, you know, how can you help them unlock that? Because I do think if you understand how the computer works, you're at a massive advantage. If you, you see it in your world, if someone knows how to code and then they know have, emo, have emotional intelligence, like that's a pretty awesome mixture. But a lot of times we only have one of the two. And one of my good friends from Syracuse is a designer and a developer. And I see how he can work in both where he can develop it and he can design it. And now he's more of a designer, but when the developer brings him something, he can check the developer. And so I'm just fascinated by listening to you tell your story is like, there's a moment when you're 13 years old where you are going into the weeds here and you just referenced Kahneman. And so obviously there's an interest also in, in the human side. Yeah. It's, it's so funny that, 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 you know, you, 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 your example of, uh, you know, neurons firing, right? And I, I, so I studied in college, I studied cognitive science and computer science. And to me, cognitive science was sort of a question of, of scope. How deep are you going to go? So you can go all the way deep into how the neurons fire, but understanding how neurons fire doesn't actually tell you the, the polar opposite end of like how someone's going to react. Right. But then you sort of look at, uh, like I remember that I think it was like the inferior frontal gyrus was where your lang where language understands. So just knowing that this thing, you don't really know how it works, but you know that in here, here's where we understand language. Those different levels of scope 
I think are, are useful. And then how people communicate is the sort of next layer on language. And I think that computers uh, in, are, are kind of the same way. So even in your fax machine example, you have sort of, okay, how are we going to send information through, a, at the time, a phone line, right? And then how are we going to take that information and convert it into, like, how are we going to, there, there's optical sensors, right, to understand what the thing is on the page. But then you go out a level and, and sort of zoom out one, one level of scope, kind of in the same way that you do with, uh, the, with, with understanding the brain, and you say, well, what, what, I, what is this going to be used for? And why, you know, in a fax machine is always the, is, well, used to be a very common example of the need for network effects, right? So you, you do all this work to make one fax machine, and then you're like, oh, wait a second. We need another fax machine. We need someone else that was fax machine, right? And the value actually of the product is a function of the total number of nodes that are connected, which is a totally different problem to solve than how do you get the optical sensor to work, right? So there's, I think similarly to the brain, software now, but I think but, but the technology has those different levels of scope. That's awesome. So you're also thinking, all right, you don't just have one fax machine, now you need another one. And how does that relationship work between the two of them? And, and so you love seeing that and, and trying to visualize and, and picture that. I want, you, you mentioned something earlier that I want to pull on, which is music. And so you have this interest in computers at a young age, and then you also said music. When did music come into your life? Really early. I mean, I think I started playing the piano when I was about six. And was that mom, dad, who, who in it? So we had a piano. I used to live in New Jersey. And we had a piano in New Jersey, and I started playing around on it a little bit. I'm sure I wasn't doing anything any, uh, useful at all, but my, my mom asked me. My mom had played piano and played guitar, and she said, when I started, when I showed interest, she said, would you like to take lessons? And so I took some lessons, and I was very lucky. I sort of had two different kinds of piano teachers throughout my life. When we lived in New Jersey, I had a piano teacher that loved the curiosity thing, right? So I, rem I have a distinct memory of... She opened up the, you have a baby grand and in the back of the baby grand, you can see all the strings. And what you don't really think about is that piano is technically a percussion instrument because it has a, a mallet that hits a string. It's not your hand that hits a string. But if you open up the piano, you can pluck on the strings. And so she's showing me how it works, right? Because she saw that I was interested. Um, I then had a very opposite uh, experience with when I moved to Maryland. I got another piano teacher who is this very accomplished pianist and played played all over you know, Carnegie Hall and all the places. And on the on the one side, she said, I remember she was like shocked when I said this piano teacher, the other piano teacher, let me touch the strings because if your hand oils get on the strings, it's really bad for it. it's corrosive to the to the strings. And so that's not good in terms of taking care of your piano. But she had a really extensive understanding of music theory. And so whenever I was getting antsy, she would just pause the classical training and say, okay, why don't we, why don't we talk about music theory? And I would, um, to me, that's, it's almost there. It's like the same part of my brain was engaged in playing music as it was in, in understanding, you know, building software in a way. So I know you're not a big sports guy, but I'm going to bring in a, a little sports analogy here. So... There's a story that I'm aware of that looks at Kobe Bryant and Carmelo Anthony. And we had mentioned Carmelo Anthony off air. So now we're mentioning Carmelo on air. And for Syracuse alum, that name is, is pretty significant for those that don't know. Same age as me as a freshman, both Brian Levinson and Carmelo Anthony led Syracuse University to a national championship. Uh, Matt's laughing at me. Um, but 
the story goes something like this. There's a coach who had the opportunity to coach both Carmelo Anthony and Kobe Bryant on the men's national team. And the person asked that coach, what is the difference between Carmelo and Kobe? And the answer was something like this. If you tell Carmelo what to do, he he will do it. He's a yes sir guy. And so when he's performing, he's going to follow what you ask him to do. And he's, he's going to do that. He's like, if you tell Kobe what to do, Kobe's going to ask you why. And then ask you why. And make sure that you know what you're talking about. And so that he then understands what you're talking about. And Kobe's favorite book as a kid was Curious George. And so I'm obsessed with this. I've got this framework that your mindset for preparation is different than your mindset for performance. And one of the binaries is to ask why in preparation but to ask how in performance. So be very curious in your preparation. But when you're performing, it's not about being curious. It's about execution. And I think Carmelo was one of the best scorers for 10 years in the NBA because he was very good at just executing. But did he have that curious nature that allowed him to constantly learn, constantly learn, constantly learn, so that when maybe some of the talent started to drop as he got older, he still had that curiosity to learn and grow and keep getting better. Whereas Kobe, I think, really had this amazing curiosity. And when he got in the game, he could be very much a how thinker. You know, how do I just get to where I need to go? And I tell that story because I think when you mix highly curious with someone who is very action-oriented, like Kobe, you get greatness. When you have one of those two, I mean, Carmelo is a very, very good basketball player, but currently right now he's out of the NBA. Um, and he'll, he'll sign with the team shortly. But at 32, he, 33, he's, he's not necessarily what Kobe was at that same age. So um, I bring it all back to you and, and the mixture of those two teachers and your ability to know, all right, how does this, how does this machine actually work? And then to actually sit there and learn how to be your best while playing it that to me, in preparation, your curious mind needs to be fed so that when you get on the piano, you can focus on just executing and, and playing. Um, does that? No, it totally makes sense. Yeah, I'm, I, it, it, it rings true for, for me, but also I think the framework makes, the framework's interesting to, to partition the time. I, 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 I can almost think about the inverse is false, which is helpful to me, which is that if you're, if during execution, you keep pausing and asking why that actually harms execution. Absolutely. But if you, in planning, understand all of the, you know, in, in, uh, you know, in, and I, 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 I self-proclaimed indoor kid, but I do at least, uh, uh, play basketball. And I think understanding, seeing the court in a certain way is probably the result of asking why so many times and replaying things in your head and um and if you can but but if you're if you're constantly trying to figure out and i think in psychology there's this idea of chunking where if you're an expert you can uh, uh it was chess was the example i remember hearing where and I, and I remember thinking that it reminded me of basketball people who see the court or football if you see the field you you can make very fast decisions because you have now had so much pattern recognition that you can just focus on executing. But you don't get that unless you sat down and really understood it to the point where you were able to reassemble those patterns on your own. But it, I love the idea that of partitioning the two the two 
behaviors. The issue that a lot of people run into is they bring that preparation mind into the performance mind like you're talking about. So they might be highly curious. And now in performance, and by the way, psychology and science and research says curiosity, good, like be curious. We have studies that show that more curious people are more successful. Yes, but when I'm at the free throw line and I'm trying to make a free throw, I don't need to be asking why this works. At that point, I need to be routine oriented and just focus on execution. And that's why a lot of performers will say when they're performing, they're not really doing a whole lot of thinking. But in preparation, you better believe a whole lot of thinking. And I could, look, the the framework is humble in preparation, even a little bit arrogant in performance. Uh, You know, fear failure in preparation, fearlessness in performance. And so the issue that happens is people bring fear of failure into performance. Honestly, for a lot of athletes, they bring humility into performance and it hurts them, right? So what does humility sound like? Oh, my bad, uh, my fault. I was, I was on me. And that is necessary when you're in a team environment for accountability and communication. But if you are in between the lines against the best performers in the world, like Steve Kerr says, what I love about Steph Curry is that he has an arrogance about him. Um, you know, Steph Curry, when he crosses midcourt and thinks that he's in range, like that is an arrogant idea. Um, it's an arrogant concept. Usain Bolt, Serena Williams, pick your performer. When Beyonce gets on stage, you know, she's not humble in that moment. Um, she's, she's got fire. Um, so, uh, it's, it's an interesting framework that I love to bounce off in. And maybe we can bounce off it a little bit in the, in the world that you're in now and, and see how it relates or doesn't relate. I'd be curious to get into that. But so you're playing piano, you are into computers. You said in college, you got into both the sort of soft, we'll call it soft skills and hard skills of science. Um, what was your high school experience? Fill in the gap for me a little bit. What were you into in high school? Um, and anything relevant there that has impacted who you are today? I mean, it was a lot of the same stuff. When I came, when I went to high school, I had, I took I mean, academically, I took a bunch of, you know, I took math and computer science and all the general stuff you take in high school. Um, I did a lot of music. And I think actually, in a way, part of the, part of what I learned on the music side in high school was, I mean, we had a very talented, you had Danny Binstock and Kellen Coleman, you know, I was in high school with him. We all did the same stuff in high school, right? And you're referencing theater. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't do, I was not good at, uh, or I didn't really spend time acting, but there was a, like, the musical and stuff, like, the musical really did, I, I, I was in, and I think that let me, I was, in high school, I was a music director of the, in, which basically meant I arranged the songs and helped people learn them, and so to me, that was, you know, the network side of the fax machine, right? Okay, I understand how music works, I can sing. I can play the piano, um, but but what's that next level of seeing how like a production comes together? And that was always interesting to me. I think that was that was, I think it probably shaped a lot of um, my comfort with other people, right? Because a lot of the other things you do are sort of fundamentally um, solitary. Playing, I played in bands, um, played music in uh, throughout high school with different groups of people. Were you playing different instruments at that point? I played. Uh, I mostly played guitar in one of the, I played guitar and piano. Um, I played mostly guitar in bands because in the late nineties, there weren't like any cool bands that were, I wasn't like into Ben Folds yet. <laughs> um, so it was mostly guitar based music and I was fine. I wasn't like great, but I, I was a good sort of backup guitarist and 
um, sang a little bit. And I think to me, the te- like the team sport for me was, I mean, I played team sports, but was uh, playing music with people, talking about building products. I don't think I called it that at the time, but when I see what my interactions with other people now, whether it's with people building new things or when I have led teams building things, it was that kind of stuff. It's sort of bouncing around ideas and then doing the thing. And that's kind of what it is in playing a band, bouncing around ideas, hey, how should we do this, but then doing it. It's kind of like playing uh, you know, playing uh, a sport, right? You sort of are talking about the strategy, but then you do it. And for me, the 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 language of learning was much much more on the, I think probably came mostly from, from music. And why not pursue a career in music? It sounds like you love that. Was there ever a thought for you that that would be the route that you'd go? So I have a really specific memory of, um, and, and so the, the short answer is, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I ever really thought about being a musician professionally. I went to see Ben Folds play. I think I was in college and he was so good and so much better than I was part of, and I, and I, I had to sort of unthink this and I realized sort of what my, my, my framework was that was incorrect at the time. But I saw that I was like, I don't know how I could ever be that good. Mm-hmm. And when I looked at, and, and I love this, I'm just, I know this sounds weird, but like I love building software as much as I love playing music. So I was like between these two things, one of them is, has a much higher probability as a sort of a professional career. And, but I remember later on looking back at that thought, uh, that, that sort of Benfold was better. And I realized that we look at each other's final drafts, final copies, right? We're all looking at each, each our, our own first draft, second draft, whatever. And to compare those things is just unproductive, right? And, and it, but it took me kind of a long time to internalize that. Yeah, man, I have so many thoughts. One, I agree. I think, especially with athletes and musicians, we only see that performance and we don't see the sweat and tears that go into the performance and we glamorize that because it looks awesome but you don't see the hard work that goes into it and and the pain that you have to go through to get yourself into that spot it's kind of like bodybuilders it's like okay they look awesome well how do you think they got that way like it took a lot of work i was actually thinking about that this morning is like everyone thinks the dream job is to play basketball or play in a band and go on the road and travel and I was actually thinking in my head if I knew what I know now would that be the dream for me and I don't think I would say yes I think the travel the cutthroatness of those industries um, the identity questioning that can occur there's just a lot of stuff having worked with people in those spaces and um, I'm pretty happy with where I'm at and I think right now this is probably the dream job for me And so it's just interesting to think about that. Two other things that I have to share with you. One, we were talking about the ADL concert against hate. And uh, before we fired up the microphones, and if you listened, as you said earlier, to Danny Binstock's podcast that we had, it was when Danny was going to present at the ADL concert against hate. And Ben Folds uh, played at that concert. I swear. And so... um, uh, and that That's is so cool. that is cheesing right now. <laughs> he is cheesing because I, I literally, before we fired up the mics, and Matt, you would love this concert and you would find it amazing. And we kind of screwed up because you should have went to this last <laughs> one where you would have seen Ben Folds on stage with the Washington Symphony playing with them 
And then you would have saw Danny Binstock literally have a picture I'll show you next to Ben Folds at the end when they take a bow. So A, you could have been Danny Binstock and been on stage with Ben Folds and maybe you weren't Ben Folds, but you could have had that moment if you stayed with music. But I love what you said about you knew that you had a passion for both of these things and you were just as passionate about software and and technology as you were about music. And the only other story I'll share about myself is when I was a junior in college, in between junior and senior year, I did the NYU dorm thing and interned at a real estate company in New York City. And it was Newmark Real Estate, which is a big commercial real estate company. And I was working with uh, the family that uh, started Newmark. And so my first day there, I'm with my mentor, a guy named Brian, um, and his cousin, a guy named Eric, and I walk into their office and they're talking about the Yankees and they're just having this conversation about the Yankees. And then about a minute, two minutes in, they just switch and start talking real estate. And that switch was so seamless. And I was listening to the Yankees and I was completely in and they switched over the real estate and I like tuned out. And that was a big realization for myself that, you know, looking back, maybe real estate wasn't the true passion for me, A, and then B, can I find something like they found where they could go back and forth between these two interests seamlessly? And when you said that just now, that is something that I think as we talk to our young people, it's like find something that you can go seamlessly with, you know, you care just as much about that you do your hobby or that you do your interest that might be, that other thing might be a little sexier. It might be a little more glamorized when you're in high school or college. But when you get to be a little bit older, you'll see that actually there's dark sides to everything. And, and if you find something that really works for you, that can be really helpful. So when did that realization, when did that hit for you that, hey, like I could go music, I could go software, and maybe I'll, I'll go in this direction? You know, I think I, my first job out of college was, or what, well, I guess while I was in college, I built some software for, um, for I was at Penn and I built software for, the, for one of the Penn's, Penn's language learning department. And it was the first time I built something that other people really used. Like there was like a couple hundred people using the software. And I was like, wow, this is cool. And when I was looking for jobs after college, trying to figure out what I want to do after college, there was an opportunity that came up to work at a, it was actually also a real estate company, but to build the, a software platform for them. And I realized it would be an opportunity to, I, you don't really usually get this as a software developer. You can just go in and, like, and build the whole thing. And roll it out, which is what I wanted to do. And the person I was working for, is, he's been an amazing boss and mentor for a long time, um, but was like, look, I don't want to spend a million dollars having IT build something before anybody uses it. Let's build a small version of a thing, and we're just going to roll it out. It's in Philadelphia. So we roll it out in Philadelphia, and then we're going to roll it out in these places. And he, the way he pitched the job, I was like, I would love coming into work every day. You have to debug, and there's all kinds of, in every job, my dad calls them painting telephones. Even Alexander Graham Bell had to paint the telephone when he was inventing it, right? And it's like, he probably didn't think that was really like the most fun part of it. But, <clears throat> and there's definitely, there's definitely parts to every job that are like that. But when I, I don't know that there was a moment where I said, I want to be a, you know, a b build software and not to be a musician. I also always did both. So I, when I started doing that, I lived in Philadelphia. I started playing at a piano bar in Philly. And I just, I did it, I think once a week. And it was super fun. My friends would come. It was a great way to like hang out with a bunch of people and to get, I always, I, I don't know that I th thought I was making a choice. I think I was like, I get to do both of these things and they may be, I, al I often think of these in as uh, 
I, I, this is where I think about like surface area of different interests. And so I had, at the time, I was probably had a little bit bigger of surface area in software because I was getting paid to do that and that was my job. But it wasn't a zero amount. And I think of surface area meaning like it's width times height, right? So I had maybe more, more, uh, more width, more breadth on the on starting starting to develop more breadth in software. But I was playing at a piano bar, which is not just a point, right? It was a few people came, right? Like 30, 40 people came every week and I was playing and like that to me wasn't I don't I don't think I saw it as as making a choice. I think I just liked doing both of those things. Is there anything you do now that is similar to what your mindset was like when you're at that piano bar? Oh so I still play at a piano bar in okay. New York. Yeah. Okay, so, so yeah, give me give me the um where where they cross. Like when you are playing the piano and mm-hmm. you're on stage compared to your job, is there is there any correlation there where there's similarities? Um, well, so so now, the, what I do now is a little bit different. It's, it's sort of funny. There's uh, The place I play at is actually a karaoke bar, and I play the piano. I accompany people. Wow. So you're so, not singing. So I, I sing it when basically people need a, drink, jump a drink or two to get in. <laughs> Once so they like they need if nobody was requesting anything. What's I'll, the name of the bar? It's called uh it's called Sid Gold's Request Room. I might have to go next time. Uh, next time we're up in New York for sure. And 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 anybody listening who's who's here, so I, who who lives in New York. I um I I do it once a once a month, right? It's super infrequent. Not spill everything all over your floor. You're good. Um so so what are the things the same? So I think you know, you're talking about preparation, right? And like, and to me, um, in both cases, I'm sort of spending time understanding how things work. So I try to, I, for me, learn, if you don't learn that many songs, I probably know 250 songs. If you learn that many songs, I, I, for, uh, for me at least, I'm not sitting down and looking at the music. I find chord charts. I sort of try to understand how the song goes, um, particularly when I'm accompanying someone else who might want it in a different key or whatever. And then during the performance, I am watching them to try to make sure I can support them because my main goal is for them not to be embarrassed, right? Some of them are people, people are amazing singers. Some are not great singers. All I know is that I want to make them the best them that they can be, right? And I think, so there's sort of maybe two parallels. to My, my work now is more on investing than building stuff. Um, I think on the, on the investing side, it's sort of the same job, right? Like I'm going to only, ha- I only have one vehicle to help people, right? With their, with, with what they're doing. It's we're making an investment and I'm going to give them my product perspective. And it's kind of the same thing as I only, or one like tool, right? And it's not, I can't jump into their business for them and do the work for them. In the same way I can't really do it for the person who's, who I'm, I'm playing next to. I think then more, more sort of, um, potentially more relevantly is just, getting up there and getting out there. I think the first time I did it was really hard. And what I try to do is find things that feel really out of my comfort zone. And whatever that is, whether that's instead of just playing for myself, playing for other people, or instead of building software, building software that other people use. And I think that that's what a person who's building a company does, is is doing, right? They're getting out of there. They're doing something often that people we back have never built a company before. There's a cool video on YouTube with uh, Herbie Hancock, and he's talking about Miles Davis. And he said they were playing together and Herbie completely screwed up. And he's like, oh crap, I screwed up. And he's looking over and, and Miles is just like still going and basically picks him up and helps him. And you know, Herbie in his mind is saying like, oh gosh, I'm gonna, I screwed up. And he realized like Miles adapted and he adjusted and did what he needed to do to still make Herbie look good. And 
I think so much of performance is adapting. And I think that's what Herbie learned from Miles in that moment was like, okay, it's not perfect, but let's make something unique and special and different. And I would imagine as you were playing piano, as you said, you need to adapt to what they need and, and figure it out. And I would imagine being in the venture space, a lot of people have this vision for what they think the company's going to be. And before we even fired up the mics, you were giving me example after example of companies that pivoted, shifted, changed mm-hmm. based on the feedback that they're getting. And they were being adaptable and adjusting their process. And so as you think about, well, first of all, I want to go back one step and and there's one connection that I'm curious about is when you switch over from being, you know, behind the scenes and and being a developer to getting into the investment side, I'm highly curious about that. But, but before we get to that, maybe you can just pull on that thread of adapting and the willingness for companies to be able to pivot, or maybe you've seen an unwillingness to, for them to pivot and that does them in. I'm just curious about that. Yeah, I mean, I think well, the, there are two things. One is the, what I'd heard about that story was that either Herbie Hancock or Miles Davis, one of them said, if you're going to make a mistake, make it three more times. And that sounds like it was on purpose. And I always thought that was sort of an interesting way to think about the world, particularly with jazz. Um, the I, 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 There is not a company that we have invested in where everything went or that I, a product that I've built where everything went exactly as planned and... Um, part of that is because I think, I don't think it's possible. It would be like, you know, in your, in, it would be like saying, here's every play we're going to run the whole game, right? Like, if you know that, like in, in order, it's, it's almost like if you, again, I sometimes think about the reverse of these things. How can one not adapt, right? If what you're doing is you're going to say here, we only know what we have control over. And most of the time there's other things that are going to to come into play and we just don't know. So we say, okay, look, here's the, here's how the industry is set up and we're going to, here's our guess. And then the point of the guess is to gather more data. And I think that when most of the time when we're talking to founders, um, the ones who are most insightful about what the guess is, what they're really understand, what they're trying to figure out um, and uh, are the, are the most interesting ones. And also I think a lot of them um, have a set of things that they say they believe are true. Right, the set of things that are are are, are going to be unchanging, and then a set of things that are like I don't really care how I get there as long as I can do as long as I can make this thing true, right? And so, I remember there was a, um, I mean I I don't even know where I heard this. At some point, I had heard that that Jeff Bezos at Amazon had said, "What are the things that aren't going to change?" Right? People are not going to want things slower, right? People are all are going to continue to buy things online, right? So if those two things are true how you end up accomplishing that. There's probably 10 different ways, 100 different ways to accomplish that. And so you take guesses at how to accomplish it and then you get feedback from the users or the customers or whoever the people are. And I think I have a hard time thinking of examples of companies that haven't had to hear feedback and make adjustments. And I almost wonder if you don't, is it even possible to divine the future in that way? Yeah. And I love the podcast, How I Built This. And I've listened to a ton of them and there is a common thread of people believing in their idea and their concept while others might laugh at them and say, this is garbage. They stay with, no, I believe that this can work. For example, I was just listening to the one with the guy who started Bonobos and you know, the story is, we don't need to get in the story, but he then realized like, oh, we should have shops. Like we should actually have retail. And he said, once we opened up retail and once we put our clothing in Nordstrom's, the e-commerce business 
you know, that's when it actually picked up everything. But when we were just e-commerce, which they believed in for a clothing company, that wasn't it. But once they actually pivoted and actually opened up a retail, which was the opposite of their original thesis, then it worked. But their original idea was that pants for men are not what they should be and that we should make better pants for men. And I think that's exactly it. It's, it's what's the problem you're trying to solve. If that's the problem, then the solution might be online sales. It might not be. It might be in person. There could be, there's a bunch of reasons why that may or may not make sense. I think that the, what's most interesting for me is hearing what problems the people want to solve and then how they plan to solve it, right? And then you get to sit alongside and help, try to help that solution be the, the solution or help give feedback from either if we're customers or, uh, or from, from sort of what the, how the market's changing on what solution on what's not working about that what why that why the the sort of a company is a solution but the but the founder is really trying to solve a problem and you mentioned building products and so talk about how you go from working for someone to building your own products uh fill in the gaps for us yeah i mean i i was not somebody who initially was like oh i have to work for myself that was not so if i went out and said i i, I have to i as i want to build products. That was the problem I was trying to solve was how can I get more people to try stuff that I'm making? How can I learn more about whether I'm good at doing this thing? And so my, I took this job. I worked at this. It was a company called Trammel Crow, which ended up merging with CBRE. And it's a big real estate company. And I built this technology platform. At the beginning, it was just me and my boss who was sort of helping me understand the industry. And, and, and it was an internal tool. Um, much of it was internal. And and so I had to go around and talk to the whole company and understand what they were trying to accomplish. And then I think what he helped me understand was, okay, in, we can't force anyone to use a piece of software. We have to create value for them. And if we do that, they're going to want to use it. And we see this time and time again where people are like, oh, I'm going to do a deal with you know, a licensing deal with the top company and then every subsidiary is just going to sign up. And that's just not how it ends up working. You have to actually bring value. Um, so I think starting there, I was always interested in building product. I think what I realized was that being in tech at a real estate company was not sort of front of house activity, right? And so, and, and I wanted to do things that were more consumer. So the, I did a few things. What part of, a part of my sort of journey was going to business school. And I, I went to business school and also uh, studied design while I was in school. There was a program in Northwestern that had both. And so I learned a lot about sort of the how to how to how to do user centered design from the person who basically invented that term, and then uh, and then also learned about a bunch of different business things I didn't know because I had mostly studied computer science and cognitive science in college. Yeah, I would imagine I, I've actually have friends who went to Kellogg at Northwestern, and I don't think a lot of them are are tech. Um, it's not. Is it? I, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, were you different than a lot of the people that were there? Um, I think, you know, I don't know. It, it, it seemed, I, I think the business school's reputations end up being at the 10% margin. Like right. there were a lot of finance people at every business school I know. Sure. Um, there were a lot of, I think there was, I mean, there's a guy, Ben Thompson, who's now has probably the most prolific newsletter in tech and he was my cohort. Um, there's a bunch of VCs. So there's a bunch of people. I think from what I hear, startups just have become so much more, um, of an interest for now. We'll see how that changes as, you know, when it gets harder to do startups and the economy is harder and do people want to now go into search funds or investment banking? I don't know. Um, it didn't, it, I don't, I think actually, I mean, Kellogg's reputation is for marketing. And to me, what I wanted to understand was, I, I think about that as kind of a big core part of a business is 
is getting out there and and getting customers and that's sort of in many ways job number one and so i was sort of viewing it from that perspective they also have a design a, a computer an engineering school that has a an, had an, has an amazing design program so it was sort of a i was sort of part in one part in the other but when you're at kellogg you said earlier yeah i wasn't necessarily sold on i have to be an entrepreneur i have to work for mm-hmm. myself so what are you thinking when you're at that point in your life the next step would be for you after after grad school so i thought i thought i wanted to start a company um and for whatever reason i thought that the way to do that was to go to business school and learn how to start i want to start a business go to business school um I think what the way that I looked at the world was there was a bunch that I didn't know about business and I could go be an investment banker for two years and be a marketer for two years and understand each part or I could learn it all really quickly at once and you know only get lim- limited experience in each part but have a, have a sense of it. I think the thing that I underestimated but, but wanted and ultimately got was really understanding of strategy. Um, and I didn't, that was a, a big piece that I really I didn't have before school. Um, and then in my summer internship, I went and joined a consumer startup where I helped a bunch of different in a bunch of different capacities, just sort of working closely with the CEO. And that's where I made that big shift to understanding, uh, to 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 understanding how how sort of running your own business really worked and a tech business and what the different business models were. And what excited you about that? Um, I mean, I love making things people use. I just i I think it's. I just find it rewarding, and I and I, I think, the more people that can use a thing is the more exciting it is, and I think doing it in a way that's sustainable. I mean, and to me, sustainable means it's a business where you can people are exchanging value and either pay you for something or advertisers are paying you for something. Um, I I I just I I don't I don't I'm trying to I don't know if I can identify what is more core than that. It's interesting because I have a little I don't know you that well, but I I actually spent time with both of your brothers. And, you know, one of your brothers is very in, into movie writing and creating a script and and following that that passion. Um, he has other pieces to him as well, but that's a passion. And your other brother is really into sports analytics and currently works for an NBA team providing that information. So I'm trying to connect the dots between the three of you. And it seems like all three of you like to create, um, like to um, potentially research and then put quote unquote, pen to paper to try to give data or value as you used to then make an impact. Am I A, missing the bar? And then B, if, if I'm not, where does that come from? I mean, I think that we for sure are all three creative. I also think it, it, it's always interesting to me that like we went into, uh, I would say each of us went into a career that there's not like an obvious career path to get to. You sort of have to pick it. Uh, if that makes sense, like I think I, I went to college. A lot of people who did went into jobs that um, I think they knew they wanted to do from when they started, or it's the job their parents did, or or whatever. Um, and and that's a perfectly reasonable path. Also, um, I I find it interesting that we have all picked things. And I think that one of the one of the properties of of picking is that you say I'm going to do something that I'm so excited about every day, and I'm going to build my career around that. And I think. Each of us has kind of done that. I mean, I, I, I think I love, in the, as you as you said, your friends were talking about, or the people you'd worked for were talking about the Yankees, and then switched over to real estate seamlessly, and they were just as excited about that. I am just excited about products and startups. I think uh, Michael's just excited about you know, sports analytics. I think Andrew's just excited about as excited about watching movies and and discussing and and understanding what makes them work. 
um, and they all have sort of outcomes you can point to where you say, okay, did I, did I move the bar? What, what did, what did dad do? What did mom do? I'm just curious as <laughs> I'm one of three boys. You guys are all creators. You all are living in different parts of the country. So you've been willing to take risk to get to create, um, I'm just trying to unpack it a little bit. Yeah. Why, like, why is that? I think, so I think that my, you know, my dad's, uh, a lawyer had always focused on environmental law and, uh, some white collar crime and he worked for the government for a while and then was in private practice. And I think he, I think he loves that. I think he, uh, he also took risks. He went and worked in, in a, a, a couple of businesses. Um, and I think, you know, I have a, um, and then, well, before I say that, I guess, and, and then my mom, my mom worked as a, did, did bookkeeping for a, a, um, I'm sure I'm describing that like job incorrectly, but, um, helped with the books for, a, an, an advertising agency. She had worked in like sort of a rotational program when she was really young at, uh, at a bank. Um, I think, I think that they encouraged us to explore the things that were interesting to us. Um, I think if I had to sort of, I mean, I do, I'm, I'm, I like, you know, I would, I remember my dad having, saying something once to me where I, I made some comment about like, Oh, the American dream, like when I was a little kid, the American dream is that you sort of do better than your, than your, your parents did. And, and he said to me, like, I, I was pretty young. And so it's kind of interesting. There's left an imprint. I was sort of hesitating because it's like, it it was sort of an impactful thing is he said, I, the American dream is that you get to get to do the thing that you are passionate about. It's not, it's, it's not about comparing yourself to sort of your parents or anybody else. It's about getting to do the thing, having the, and not everybody gets that. That's why it's a dream. And so you have to take risks for it. And I think, I think that stuck with me. And I don't know if he had, I don't think that he, had explicitly the same conversation with my brothers, but I, I do think that our parents were always encouraging of us taking a risk and doing a a thing that was um, uh, uh, or following our passions probably more more accurate than taking a risk. Yeah, because there's there's another part of the story that I know is that both of your brothers had jobs when when they quote unquote took those risks. They they didn't just do it blindly. They weren't just throwing you know whatever the phrases at the wind right mm-hmm. like they they uh but they were they and they both are and continue to be re- pretty relentless in pursuing i mean hollywood and sports are two of the hardest industries to break into because they're sexy and they're glamorous um and but both of them are trying and continue to try to add value to that world and create value and it, there's there's a part of your story there's like all right, so you just hit on the passion part, but then there's other part about creating value so that you can create impact. And um, so you've talked a lot about, I wanted to create a value so that I could impact the most people possible mm-hmm. with my product. So I'm going to bring it back to you. So creating products, walk us through, and we talked about earlier, people see the end result and they think, oh, that looks awesome. I want to do that. Walk me through how hard it was. And what it was like for you to create product. I mean, I've built a few different things over, over, over time. Um, 
in terms of how you know the I, I so so I, I always think about other other people, not myself. I think like they, like there are companies all the time that are really successful where is the, the joke is it sort of like takes a decade to make an overnight success or take it took like three or four years to get the thing right. Um, so in terms of the stuff that I built, I mean, I, I'll use an example. I built some software for, so after business school, I started my own company in Chicago and it was a small, basically a small software business where I built, um, a friend and I started out building a product for the real estate industry. And my problem to solve was just, is there, I was really looking for a problem to solve. Um, and, and the question I was asking was, what is the, there's got to be something at the intersection of sort of social media, which I kind of had understood from the consumer, from the consumer app that I'd worked at. Um, and then, and then real estate, which I'd understood from the real estate company I'd worked at. And so I built, my friend and I built three full products, like without, like, and without, I, I think um, they were sort of ideas. And we basically bought, brought, I, I would say we, the first product we built, we put out there and like sort of started paying for some Google AdWords. I'm like, okay, maybe this is interesting. I'm not sure. The second product we built, um, I'm sorry, the second thing we built, we ended up going, we then realized that's like not the right approach. So we went and talked to a bunch of people in real estate and said, what, what are the, like, we have this idea, would this solve your problem? And what I, what I think about a lot is going, what I call like going, doing, the, showing the report first, like show the dashboard that it's, that's like the result that they care about. And so if I can show you a dashboard and you're like, I don't really care about that. This doesn't make me want to use the thing more Then don't build the thing because that all it's, it's only exists to be able to, to create some sort of re results. Right. And if you're, if I'm showing you the theoretical results and you're like, Oh, that, that doesn't really mean anything to me. So for example, one of the things was getting people to share, um, the, the, it was when Facebook was sort of first out and getting people to share where they live online, uh, on, on posted to Facebook. And I said, if we could do this, would, would this matter? And when I looked at the total numbers of it, it sort of kind of matters. What turns out mattered a lot was getting reviews for an apartment mm -hmm. because nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I want to, I'm going to review my apartment building right now. And there's very few, unlike a restaurant, very few. So I think the iteration process was going, was coming up with an idea, coming up with a hypothesis, right? Going to a potential customer saying, does this make sense? And after every meeting, I always often say, is there anything else that's sort of bothering you or any other problems you're running into and one of the people was like you know this isn't that interesting but getting um if i could you know uh, my reviews are terrible online and people like living there it's just i can't get the right people and i said oh that's interesting when we get people to share we could also collect the data of if they actually like the place and that creates an opportunity for us to let them broadcast that and that turned out to be an actual business and but it took you know it took a lot of just conversations and it wasn't um i wouldn't describe it as like you know the sexy part of it, I ended up licensing the software to a company called apartments.com and they had an option to buy it. And that was, that was an exciting, fun negotiation, but that was different than the actual building the product. And you said you had a partner. Uh, what was that like to have a partner and, and to be in business with someone else? I think that that was harder for me than I thought it was going to be. Um, I now have partners again, and I think I'm still learning. I think we all learn. Anybody who has done their own thing and been their own boss, I think, you, there's something that it's a bandaid that gets ripped off. That's really hard to put back on. Um, my partner, I ended up, um, uh, splitting ways amicably. He ended up building another company, which was, which was cool. And I, um, and I worked on this and, um, I think it was, that was probably a reflection of kind of, we just, we want, had different visions of business. I didn't want to raise a ton of money for it. And, um, I was sort of would have, was happy with a different 
risk profile from the business than he was. And he wanted to sort of really go after something really hard and build something really big. And that's not what I wanted to do for that company. And so that's that I would say was was difficult. Um, as I think about how that informed my partnerships now, um, you know, there. I don't know of anybody I've talked to who has co-founders where it's a perfect relationship. I there's very few who talk about it. I think I think especially as an investor, I think they want to present a united front. But I've been on the other side of that. I know that it's there are certain things that are just hard. I've thought about this. The divorce rate in the U.S. is always right around fifty percent, and so. You know, I asked my dad, who has had good partnerships and bad partnerships, what made the good partnerships good and the bad partnerships fail. And he said to me, look, I believe that you should live with someone before you get married to them. And I thought, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think a lot of times partnerships are formed because this person adds this value, I add this value, let's just partner together. And so they jump in without, like, when before I got married, we went and saw a rabbi who talked to us about what was important in our values, and we saw her, I think, four times. And she really almost works as a therapist in that way. And, you know, I wonder what divorce rates would look like if people took that time to, A, live together, which a lot of people do these days, but B, actually have the hard questions before they jump into the marriage. And then kids make it really complicated too. But um, for a partnership, it's the same way. You have kids which end up being the the product, right? And and the business. And um, so do you do stay together for the sake of the business? Or sometimes maybe they need to split for the sake of the business. Um, and so partnerships, I think, are, are something I still am trying to learn about because I think that they're really complicated. Um, and uh, look, they often, often fail just like marriages do um because there's multiple people involved yeah it's you know in in software development when you have one person but if i'm the only person coding it's actually really efficient because i can store the whole plan in my head the second you get a second person you have to do two things you have to both do the work but also you have to figure out how you're going to communicate and if you have a third person now all three of you have to figure out how to communicate and until you get to a big enough group where the man hours are uh uh decent leverage, it's actually sort of less efficient because I mean, my view is almost all of these things are about communication. Um, every, it, uh, there, are, there are a set of issues that are zero sum, right? I mean, the, the, between two people. But almost everything else is about Compromise. Hurt, hurt feelings, uh, not, having re- not, not having said, oh, this is what I'm going to do, and then doing it. Right, it's just doing it, and they're like, "Oh, I forgot." And actually, you know, and this had come up with us. It's like we were both had run our own businesses. We were both used to just making the decision, and and you forget, and you step back, and you start to say that. And I think, I think it's a, uh, the it is an interesting observation that the divorce rate is what it is, and but yet every co-founder relationship is perfect. Yeah. So <laughs> so walk me through how you how you transition, um, and uh, how you end up on the other side of of the business of technology. Yeah, so I so we had so the company I was at um, it was a company called Hot Potato and the social the social media product and we ended up selling that to Facebook and it was sort of pretty quick it was my business school internship but uh, the company actually lasted for a short enough period of time that I was there from a lot of it and was there through the acquisition and went out to visit Facebook and I didn't you know I, at that point I didn't join Facebook I went back and finished up business school but my thought had been okay well if this company works like I'll, I'll join it and. 
Um, then I had started my own company. Once I had, li- I had a ba- when I, I did a license uh, for this for the real estate tech that I had built to this company, Apartments.com, and I moved back to New York. And when I moved back to New York, I reached out to a bunch of VCs who I had talked to over the years. And one of them was Betaworks, who had invested in Hot Potato. And it turned out that the person who was running investments at the time we were doing investments off our balance sheet uh, was going to leave and start something new. And he was looking for his replacement. And so I had, I had approached the conversation of, I, you know, I did my own startup. I, I want to join something that's, I've just moved back to New York. I'm excited. I knew I wanted to be in New York longer term. Um, what are the cool companies? And when I started looking through Betaworks' portfolio, a lot of the companies were interesting. And actually, I spent some time consulting with a company that happened to be, an, like, I wasn't even introduced to Betaworks, but it was just clearly the kinds of things that I was interested in were consistent with the kinds of things that the team was interested in. Um, so when that person said, you know, instead of going to work for a company, would you want to do investments? And I was, and at the time, I was like, I'm not a, I'm not a VC, I'm not an investor, I'm a, I'm a builder. Um, but because Betaworks did two things, it all it, we built, but also Betaworks uh, invested, but also built. So they had built uh, Bitly and uh, Giphy at the time was just getting started. Um, a company called Dots, which is a Connect the Dots game, was just getting started, and there had been a few successes. And so I was like, okay, well, it's not you can walk in this VC fund and see four offices in like pristine shape. It was like a bunch of developers sitting out in the middle of space building stuff. And also if you were raising money for your company, you came in and pitched them. And I was like, that's actually kind of cool. Cause I won't, I feel like I won't be so far away from people building things. And to me, uh, what I learned was like, it's, I, I learn from other developers. What's interesting and exciting and fun for them and fun for me tends to be the kinds of things we're going to use in a few years. And so that was sort of the, uh, that, that's how I ended up kind of just, sort of pivoting into the uh in the investment world i did i said i was going to do it for a year and then five years later uh we ended up raising a fund and uh invested in i guess 75 companies or so how important is it for you to have that background in development to be able to speak their language you know i actually don't know i think there's an advantage to not understanding how technology works because you don't see the constraints um i think the disadvantage is in communicating i think i i think it's it is, I think it helps build trust to be able to have a conversation at a deep level with someone who's building something. It's like, oh, have you thought, have you tried this? You know, at the time they're just software, they're software developers, not they haven't built a business yet. And so as you're getting to know each other, asking questions like, oh, you know, if you, you know, you did, a, you, you, you're asking people for push notifications. One of the trends in design is to ask whether or not people even want push notifications before you give them the pop-up. And or to give them the pop in context. And either that's something they've already thought of, which is often the case because they're really good. And then that gives me information that they think of this stuff or they find it to be valuable because maybe they're coming from a different industry or different. They haven't done a mobile app before. And so they say, okay, that's a really fast way to learn. And so then that builds trust that hopefully I know what I'm talking about. But maybe this is at too basic of a level, but I've built, when I say I, I've had people help me build probably five websites. And the amazing thing about, software developers are kind of like home builders. They're good at saying, no, you can't do this. You know, that's not possible. No. And this is at a very micro level. It's not at the Mm -hmm. level you're talking about. And whenever that's happened, I have reached out to some of the people I know and said, Hey, they're telling me that I can't do this. I don't speak the same language as them. So literally they speak a different language than me. So I, I'm looking at this and I'm saying, I don't know. But my friends do. And I say, hey, they're saying I can't. And then they'll email back, no, they can do da 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 And 
what I would learn is that they would say no because, well, it's going to take a lot of work and time and I'm paying X and they're supposed to deliver Y. And so and maybe that's not as relevant at, at your level. I don't know. Is so, it? So I think it's really relevant if you're running the business. I think it's probably a little bit, I don't, just don't know how relevant it is in the, on the investing side. Um, only because I think it's for exactly the purpose with you, which you identified, which is helping people prioritize. So advising a company, it's, it's relevant because you can say, Hey, here's how it, it, I think ultimately what you're trying to get at is what are the trade-offs that you want to make? On occasion, there'll be something that someone says you can't do it and they just didn't think of the right thing. And, and that can be helpful. Um, but most of the time it's not going to be me who I'm like, Oh, the, I can say, Hey, I saw that this this and some other product had this because I pay attention to that stuff. And so that can be helpful. But I think I do think that your exact use case is the is the one where it makes sense, which is really having the the language or the vernacular to be able to say, here are the trade-offs that I'm willing to make. And often I think we have shorthand for that. Like, oh well, we can't do that. But of course you can do it. Almost any you can do almost anything, right? It's well, we can't do that in the amount of time we have allotted or or allocated or with the amount of budget that we have because then we're going to have to not do these 10 other things which we think are more important. Mm -hmm. And I think being able to eyeball that and say, well, there's a faster way to do that, um, or I think you know this uh, well, is connecting them with somebody who's done it before, that's, I think, a real... You know, I, th that, has happened, that happens all the time, where I see someone did something, you know, there's a voice product that's um, figured out how to do a certain thing in real time that someone else doesn't know how to do, and they say, you know, we can't figure this out. Do you know anybody who's done that? And I say, yes, let me... And then, and then shortening that time so you, it actually reduces their time and budget associated with that, I think for sure matters. And you mentioned voice, and before we fired up the mic, you said that you're really passionate about communication and how we communicate and the technology that's related to communication. Why? Um, that's a good question. I feel like it's, it's like one of those things like, you know, ask yourself why and a bunch of times and you just get to the thing. Why am I passionate about how people communicate? Cause I think I've always loved, um, the, I took a class in college that was uh, called formal logic and Basically, you'd get these rules, and it was if you picture kind of fractals, you'd sort of get a you get a sort of here's the rule, and then it would say well, here's what happens, and um, in, and there are certain emergent properties in the system. So, really simple example is like uh, I remember being surprised that you have when you have if you have a fire and you want to reduce it, there's a certain number of trees that if you burn will limit how the fire spreads. But you can't, it's not it, you can't just burn a random number of those trees. You have to do it in a specific way, and you under and because of the rules of a forest system, fire spreads a certain way, and by doing controlled burning, you can limit the fire. Um, there's also examples of this with how how um, people wanting to live uh, next door to people who are of the same whatever race, gender, whatever it is. You only need a very small number of people for that to have a huge impact, mm. right? And I almost think about it like you know. You have a very small amount of DNA, but that dictates how your whole body is going to form because of because of the way that the instructions work. What I always found interesting was seeing those second and third order properties of a system. And so when social, particularly when social media came up, that was the first time I saw directly the difference between just the idea of having a bi-directional friendship in Facebook versus having a follower one-directional friendship in Twitter made them totally different products. Twitter is like a broadcast medium where you follow somebody who you probably don't know, 
Whereas Facebook, it would be sort of weird to follow, to ask for friendship of somebody you've never met before, right? And so the kinds of content that gets shared is different. It makes much more sense to show share pictures of your family because these are pictures people who you've bi-directionally uh, agreed with versus uh, the New York Times, which might post all of its articles on Twitter. And, and, and sometimes that doesn't make so much sense in Facebook. And I think that that's where... Um, that th those kind of emergent properties I always found fascinating. And I think one of the places where in the last decade they have appeared most is in, I'll call it broadly social media, although that word sometimes is devoid of meeting. And I think with, with when I, when I look at new interfaces and voice is one of them that I've been focused on for the last few years, my thesis was voice has an, there's something different about voice that, um, Will have an emergent. Will have an effect on the kind of stuff that gets shared, and we see it, right? You can't, you can't, you can't uh, consume multiple things at once, right? If you listen to this podcast, you can you can listen to it as fast as you want, but you have to listen to it in order. Or it won't make any sense. If you go to um, Pinterest, you consume ten pictures at once, and then you get to pick, and that's that creates a, a different something that's different. And attention uh, and focus, and where focus, how you grab focus, and how you grab attention. So and 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 how do you get more listeners? So you probably have guests on to get more listeners, and you hope the listeners are going to share things out. And so it creates a. It, I don't think it's a coincidence that podcasts mainly are two people talking and one person is a guest, and you have different guests so that you can grow the audience because there isn't a good place to. So understanding the dyna dynamics of that, um, you have no space limitation really. So it can be an hour long, and you can go talk about lots of different topics as long as your audience trusts you to be interesting. They'll, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll listen. And that means you can have longer conversations. That's like the opposite of all the other social media. Well, it's interesting. Two thoughts. One, humans are social by nature. And so how do we socialize? We communicate. And that, that's like, a. <laughs> we've been doing that forever. Mm -hmm. uh, now we just broadcast it a little bit. Um, and so, so that's very interesting to me. And, and I think about podcasting in particular and, and you're referencing this and we're the players tribune uh, in the sports world which is very long form or bill simmons became very popular with long form or in the podcast world we have tim ferris or joe rogan and these people that are providing like very rich nuanced content and then we have the headline like the news is a headline driven world or the yahoo homepage or whatever it might be or twitter um and so we're at this fascinating place technology-wise for how we communicate where people are thirsty for nuance and context. For example, I mean, this is brand new. This past weekend, you've got these kids in Make America Great Again hats on the Lincoln Memorial and the Native American uh, guy beating a drum. And the news runs with it and says that these kids are racist and they're this and they're that. And then... If you want, there's actually a two-hour video that captures the entire thing, and it's on a phone. And I watched the two-hour video because I'm thirsty for context and nuance, and I have trained myself to question when I see a, a headline. But most people still aren't at that place. I think most people are still grabbing the headline, running with it, sharing it on their social media, you know, being part of that trend, broadcasting the, the clips, but if you want to, you can get these amazing data-filled, nuanced information. I mean, I love reading books, but sometimes I'm better off listening to a two-hour podcast with the author of that book to get the highlights. And so 
like I, I'm really interested to see where we go because I think in a lot of ways people are hungry for great content. We don't need to get into fake news and all that mm-hmm. stuff, but it is there is a reality that there are our news system in a lot of ways is set up for those media clips, you know, fear, shock, uh, headline news to get you to clickbait. I mean, this stuff is that is a part of the ecosystem. I think for sure. And I think one of the things that I'm learning is that it's not just, you know, when you think about sort of what that individual strand of DNA is, if it's just, you know, follower by directional thing, it's not just that. There's a whole bunch of inputs. And one of the, you know, as, as an example, we were talking about subscriptions earlier, right? Subscription businesses. The fact that your business model is that someone pays you may change your incentives all throughout your business. So, so for example, I heard this, I loved this, uh, this example. Imagine you had a news service that said, if there's no news, you, you, and you pay for it. They say, if there's no news tomorrow, we're just going to send you a blank email or whatever. We're, or we're, we're not going to broadcast. We're only going to send you things we think are worthy of news. Think about that behavior versus if you have an advertising model and you have 30 minutes a night that you have pre-sold to a bunch of advertisers and your business changes. If you, so you have to now you have to say, okay, there's, there's 30 minutes of attention that I've pre-sold, I have to come up with something to put into this into this slot. Those are two different behaviors that could act, that a business could exhibit that are not necessarily aligned with the goals of their users because their customers are actually different, right? If your user is the customer, you can align really well. If your user is if you're selling if if you're selling the person's eye, your user's eyeballs, then your your advertiser is the customer. And so I think what people aren't searching for right now is subscription is the most literal example I can think of. But I think there's other other businesses that are that are emerging or try, if people are trying these different things. I mean, there was one company that was building a whole blockchain infrastructure so that you could sort of have these subscriptions and and uh, it was called Civil. Uh, and the idea was that it would allow, like create the right incentives for local news, for, for news with small, small audiences to be able to exist. I don't know if that works or not, but I like that people are thinking that's the problem they're trying to solve, right? To go back to what we were talking about before, they said, like, well, the problem we want to solve is that right now, are, uh, we as consumers are not aligned with a lot of the uh, companies that are serving us information. Yeah, because if you if you watch the news, I don't care if you're watching Fox, CNN, whoever, whatever, it's pretty much just Trump. I mean, like, I, I, I don't watch the news anymore. And I know a lot of people that are just like, I'm not going to watch this eight-panel discussion about these people's opinions on whether it's right or wrong. I'm still going to try to stay informed. It's important that I stay informed, but... I'm not sure that the news is giving me that. And there's a reason why they're going toward that. And to your point, to fill that in a way that they think drives, draws eyeballs. We could go on and on. That could be a rabbit hole that I'm fascinated with. Maybe we'll save it for another conversation. I am curious, though. You've been around companies that have had a lot of success. And you've been around companies that I'm sure have failed. Is there anything that you notice um, when it comes to successful companies, as far as what they what they do, is there anything that you look for when you're investing? That you talked a little bit about it before, as far as solving problems and you know being flexible enough to get feedback. But is there anything in particular that is part of your secret sauce or part of their secret sauce as as far as success goes? I think every company is different. the The one thing that comes to mind as you as you ask that is this the there, there's this um, Peter Thiel had this observation, um, and I read it before I was investing. I was just starting uh, starting to invest that uh, every company should have a secret, 
that they think that they know to be true, but other people don't know to be true. And I, I didn't really understand what he meant. And as I did more and more investments, what I realized was, I think I started to learn what he meant. And I, I think that actually is a, um, a way to think about the world, which is why is this person building this company? What do they know? that no like what's their it's it's sort of like what's your advantage but it's it's a bit different than that because it's somebody coming and saying look everyone else is doing this but here's why it's not working right and i know that because of whatever reason which is hopefully a believable reason um here's my theory i think if we did this it would work and no one's tried this yet and that could mean that could mean anything right and i think it's not necessarily that their insights right it's really about insights right it's not necessarily their insights right but the ability to generate the insight means it's, I think it's probably pretty predictive of whether they can generate more insights like that as thing, as they learn more, right? Can they, can they, and, and the reality is I think most early, early stage investors I talk to, particularly if you're looking just when there's an early product or maybe no product at all, um, they, they say, you know, it's very hard to predict which of these companies is going to be the one that just is monstrous because some of those things are out of the company's control. How big the market is. You know, you may think Airbnb turned out to be a massive market, but it, it may have been smaller and still they were, they weren't, their thesis was still right, right? They built the right product. It just wasn't big enough. Um, the, so, so I think that the, the fact that they realized that, that, that there was a problem here and that they could solve it and that the insight they had about something as simple as there are, there's often not enough hotel rooms and anybody could host people why not why not try that and and hey look couch surfing is doing this but they're doing it sort of as a co-op kind of model and there's a business here i think those kinds of insights are uh are are what we look for not because they're the right one because it, you might be able to generate another one awesome so last question and, and then we'll let you go this has been a lot of fun so uh it, it's it's always i love talking with people outside the sports world because it helps me integrate into the sports world and vice versa um so what do you do to intentionally be your best? What do you do? Is it daily, weekly, monthly? Are there any practices that you do to set your mind so that you can show up uh, as, as your best? Um, so I do a few things. I think like mentally, I, I try to meditate. Um, I, what I, I would put everything that I do in the bucket of being low frequency, like having a just low frequency. And I think there's you know, I picture like a wave and sometimes you get stressed out and you have the waves, you know, it's, it's a high frequency, but you, um, you know, and it goes faster. So what are the things that I can do? So for me, what works is I, I do meditate frequently. I try to do it daily. What does that look like when um, you do it? It looks like me opening the Headspace app for ideally 20 minutes, but often only 10. Um, it, it look and I, and I was actually thinking about this as sort of the new year was, was upon us and, you know, what am I going to do differently? And I realized that I, I don't, one of the other things that makes me feel that way is exercising. And I had not prioritized. I had hurt my back. And so I wasn't prioritizing. I was like, I'm prioritizing exercising again. Because I think that, to me, makes me low frequency. I think, um, you know, the, I think a lot about the contour of my day. Is it a bunch of 15-minute meetings where I'm meeting with a bunch of new companies? Is it a bunch of hour-and-a-half meetings where I'm going very deep with companies um, or with people or learning um, so I just, I, I try to pay attention to the things that are, I'm, and the thing I'm trying to do actively this year is, uh, is pay attention to things that are sort of like, where, when you, where do you get energy and where do you give energy and how are you um, stay, keeping in balance with that? And not everything in your one's calendar is in one's control, but uh, 
But that's those are some of the things that I, I think most about. Yeah, I think a lot of people are focused on time management. And when I work with clients, we often talk about energy management and how do you manage your energy throughout a given day and, and what ways can you recharge and what ways do you need to rest and um, how do you rest and how do you prioritize rest so that you can then be where you need to be when you need to be there. Um, I want to give you a platform to promote yourself, the company, the podcast that you do. <laughs> um, and uh, your podcast is a little different than my podcast. Uh, so tell everyone about your podcast, where they can find you. Your your website is cool and different and unique. Uh, and then also the work that you're you're doing uh, in the venture space as well. Yeah, thank you. Um, so you can follow me on Twitter, um, at Matt Hartman, uh, M-A-T-T-H-A-R-T-M-A-N. And, uh, and I do have a podcast. I do it in sort of uh, bursts, but I have a daily five minute podcast called TLDR daily, uh, where I talk to somebody who I think is smart about a topic they find interesting. It's often tech people, but it is often not about technology. Um, and then I, uh, I'm at Betaworks Ventures. So if you have a company that you're working on, uh, in, in the categories we focus on, we're at betaworksventures.com and and I guess if you live in New York, come come to the piano bar. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm gonna have to time my trip up to New York to go to the piano bar. I love to sing. I absolutely love to sing, and occasionally in my past, when I've had a few cocktails, I freestyle. Um, so um, maybe we can work something out there that that could make some magic happen. It is a dream of mine to make like one hit song. I don't want to have. I want to be a one hit wonder, basically. <laughs> like I don't want to be a musician, but. I would love to make one hit song. So maybe I can get, it can be me and the Hartmans, all three of you. Like uh, you guys are actually talented. I can maybe make one of those songs that's not talent, but it's actually like catchy. I, I think that's <laughs> I think that's what I'm going for. So maybe we can make that happen. I love that it. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. Uh, and of course you can go to intentionalperformers.com to listen to all of our shows as well. Uh, so I want to thank you for coming back to your old stomping grounds. I know you're going back up to New York and making some time coming through Bethesda and coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, and we have to shout out Andrew Hartman. (laughs) We can can also shout out Michael Hartman. So Andrew Hartman, I'm sure you will listen to this. Thank you because Andrew nudged me into podcasting, as I mentioned in the beginning. And thank you for introducing me to your brother, Matt. And we'll give your brother, Michael, a shout out too. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. It's sort of the same job, right? Like I'm going to only, ha- I only have one vehicle to help people, right? With their, with, with what they're doing. It's we're making an investment and I'm going to give them my product perspective. And it's kind of the same thing as only, or one like tool, right? And it's not, I can't jump into their business for them and do the work for them in the same way. I can't really do it for the person who's, who I'm, I'm playing next to. I think then more, more sort of, um, potentially more relevantly is just getting up there and getting out there. I think the first time I did it was really hard. And what I try to do is find things that feel really out of my comfort zone. And whatever that is, whether that's instead of just playing for myself, playing for other people, or instead of building software, building software that other people use. And I think that that's what a person who's building a company does, is, is doing, right? They're getting out of there. They're doing something often the people we back have never built a company before. <laughs>